Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. And our theme today is Lessons from the Rule of Benedict. Lessons from the Rule of Benedict. In fact, the next few weeks, I'm going to talk about lessons from the slowed-down tradition of scripture and history uh, and its implications for our own leadership and, and discipleship. Now, the Bible is so deep uh, that an elephant, they say, can drown in it, right? And a baby can wade in it. It's inexhaustible. It's so rich. Uh, in fact, when we meet God face-to-face and we've been there a hundred billion years, there'll still be more to learn. He, he's just inexhaustible. In the same way, God's work in history and uh, from the beginning of time and uh, through Pentecost and the history of the church uh, is just so varied, so rich, so amazing. There's just so much to learn. And and so it's important that we learn from the global church uh, through history as the people of God have interacted with scripture in different cultures in different moments and how God has moved. And, and so I am a great lover and believer in learning from history, uh, church history in particular. And uh, George Santayana, who was you know, a great philosopher and historian from Spain, wrote years ago, very famously, those who cannot learn from history are condemned or doomed to repeat it. Those who cannot learn from history are doomed or condemned to repeat it. And uh, I believe it's a great loss, enormous loss for us uh, to learn from only our period of time in history or only our stream of the church. There's so much to learn from the global church. Think of Iraq or Ethiopia, Egypt, Russia, Africa, the Asian church, uh, you know, the Protestant Reformation in Europe, different periods of history. There's so much to learn uh, as we seek to walk out the mission of Jesus in our day. And so part of my desire is to expose you to a broader uh, moving of God through history, uh, the good and, and the bad. And so today I want to talk to you about the lessons from the rule of Benedict. Now, there is an ebook, a free ebook available on our website uh, that you can pick up. And I want to strongly encourage you to do so at uh, go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash church history. And uh, it's a short ebook on uh, why it's so imp- why church history matters to a discipleship that deeply changes lives and why it's so important to learn from other traditions outside of our own without leaving our own, uh, but to learn from others. So again, emotionallyhealthy.org slash church history, get that ebook called Church History Matters to a Discipleship That Deeply Changes Lives. Uh, it's a truth that changed my life many years ago, and I think it brought great riches to the church uh, around the world through emotionally healthy discipleship. So let's dig in here to Benedict. Benedict uh, was born in the year 480 AD, and he lived in a time when the Roman Empire was disintegrating. Uh, At one point, Rome was the world's greatest, most large city uh, with over a million people. That was in the second century. But then when Rome was overthrown in 410 AD, uh, it shocked the civilized world at that time, what was considered the civilized world at that time. And uh, I mean, it was, it was, they thought it was the end of the world. I mean, and Rome continued to decline from 410 AD through the year 500 AD. And the population was scattered and from a population of 1 million, it was down to 100,000 people. But the collapse of Rome was so staggering that the morale of the citizens uh, and the city just so declined morally and it so affected the church, it so become so worldly that when Benedict arrived in the early 500s, as a Christ follower, he was shocked and disgusted by the corruption and the immorality. And as far as he was concerned, uh, like many others before him, Rome was too far gone to be saved. 
And so he turned his back on a life of privilege uh, as a son of a government official, and he moved to a nearby forest and, and then a cave to dedicate himself to a life of prayer. Uh, people then gathered around him, and a, a community was formed. Now, again, he what he did was not that unusual. Uh, it had been being done from uh, the third, fourth centuries and fifth centuries before him, and they called themselves desert fathers and mothers, and uh, they were following the tradition of Moses, who was in the desert for 40 years, and Elijah, who was a prophet of the desert, John the Baptist, who was a man of the desert, Jesus in the desert, uh, Paul spent three years in the Arabian desert. And so they saw themselves as following uh, certain people in scripture. And uh, and so when Benedict did that, eventually um, uh, he formed a monastery, uh, actually founded 12 monasteries near Rome. And his sister Scholastica also began her own community of women and nuns at the same time. And so to guide these uh, monks to live in community in a simple, orderly way around Jesus at the center, he wrote uh, a book called uh, The Rule of St. Benedict. And it was it's a little rule for beginners is what he called it. And it's famous. It became one of the classic documents of Western civilization. It's used actually in Western civilization courses in universities uh, even today. But more importantly, it's used in uh, for thousands and tens of thousands of people. It has for the last fifteen hundred years, and even today, there are thousands of people from, you know, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and even uh, Evangelical and Protestant traditions that use the Rule of Saint Benedict to guide their communities. Uh, so it's a, it's a tremendous document. Now, when you read it, and I want to encourage you to pick up a copy, you're going to notice some cultural things that are clearly outdated, uh, and so present. Benedictine communities today actually update it and bring it into the culture, but they keep the heart of the wisdom that was found in this little document. I mean, it's something you can read in less than an hour, but it's actually not meant to be read, but it's meant to be prayed over and kind of almost an electio divino through because there's such riches in it. It's filled with scripture from beginning to end, uh, but it, it was a way of bringing uh, balance and wholeness uh, and a depth of spirituality to communities, uh, monastic communities in his day. Uh, that, again, is to the test of time. Now, Benedict and, and monasticism in general is considered a drastic response to a drastic historical moment. And uh, In other words, monasticism grew up out of when the church became uh, aligned with the Roman Empire and there was so much worldliness inside the church that men and women began to flee to the desert to live in communities as a, they called it a white martyrdom, as a as a way of, there was no more martyrdom for Christ because now the state and the church was all comfortable together, but it was a way to follow Jesus and get cleansed of the idols of the world that were now idols in the church as well, to be able to seek the face of Jesus and thus save the world long-term. And, uh, and so what Benedict was doing here uh, in his cultural moment for some writers today, say there's a similar need uh, as well. And uh, people like Alastair McIntyre, Rod Dreher wrote a book recently called The Benedict Option. And many have likened our present cultural moment uh, in the West in terms of spirituality, Christian spirituality, to the fall of the Roman Empire. In other words, our culture is so far gone that it's going to take some radical discipleship, a radical uh, following of Jesus to be able to send a life raft back and save, you know, those in the in the world. And so it's just fascinating. But it wasn't until 2003, 2004, when I took our four-month sabbatical, which I've talked about before, and we went and spent, you know, four months visiting and living uh, the rhythms of monastic spirituality with a variety of monastic communities. 
uh, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Evangelical. Uh, and we did retreats uh, with monks who structured their lives and communities. Most of them, in fact, all of them, I think about, except for the Orthodox ones, uh, structured their lives around the rule of St. Benedict. And so it wasn't just reading a book for me at that point. I was actually experiencing it uh, with people who were in it 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years uh, over a few generations. And so it was the rhythms, the silence, the offices, their community. It was so transformative for me. And I and I remember, uh, you know, at that point, I started to read the rule of St. Benedict. And again, it's a quick read. But I remember at one lunchtime, and they're quiet during meals at a mon- at this particular Trappist monastery, they were reading very slowly the rule of St. Benedict, because uh, again, it's how they structured their lives. And it was almost in a meditative way. And I remember saying, boy, I've got to read this a bit differently now. And, and thus I did. I began to read that this short, powerful little book uh, regularly for my own grounding, both as a leader and a follower of Christ, because it was so different than my you know, my evangelical, my missional, my super active life that I was in as a pastor here in New York City. So let me encourage you to pick up The Rule of St. Benedict in English by Timothy Fry. It's, it's on Amazon. It's it's only $2.95. I encourage you to pick it up. You can actually get a free copy of a, you know, you can read it online, I think, as well. But it's worth getting a an ebook copy or a hard copy and slowly meditating on it and just looking at it and looking for lessons. And so for me, in my context, I learned a great deal from Benedict's wisdom. Uh, as I was living, as I live life outside the monastery in the challenges of everyday life, not as an escape, but as a way to structure uh, my life to keep Jesus at the center and deal with the idols of my own heart and the culture. And so I, like you, want to bring a gift to the world. That was Benedict's desire that that these communities were not isolated, but were gifts to the world for Christ and that something drastic is needed. And I believe something drastic is needed as well. And it's more than just adding a few spiritual disciplines. It is a whole new way of life. And, and so uh, if you're involved with emotionally healthy discipleship, if you've read emotionally healthy leader, uh, underneath it is a call to, a, to, to the desert, a call to find your own desert in Christ uh, and get to God uh, in a drastic way, not just adding a couple of spiritual disciplines, but, but reshifting your whole life. I like to call it leave the... Um, leave the world and leave uh, the Western church as we know it and get to Jesus. Structure your life in such a way that you get to Jesus to get cleansed of your idols in your own heart and you can see clearly the idols in the world and thus bring leadership uh, to those whom you're leading. And so I'm going to give you seven right now um, riches that have stayed with me over the last 15 plus years from uh, the rule of St. Benedict. And uh, I'm going to share them with you and you can take them where you, you like. And I think they're, they're tremendous and uh, may God bless you with them. So the first is this. The first is rhythms and, and the rhythm of the daily office was such a gift. Uh, I remember the first mona- the first Trappist community that I went into uh, as the Benedictine community, they stopped eight times a day for what's called daily offices. Uh, that is a stop for prayer, silence prayer, reading the Psalms, uh, scripture, other scriptures, and worship uh, eight times a day. And they had a rhythm of, of doing this in the morning, getting up at three o'clock in the morning. They, you know, they, they, there would be a daily office. And I, I participated in their lifestyle. For the, I remember the first week I spent at a monastery, I, I, by the time that week was over, we got up three o'clock for an office, went back to our room. They called it a cell, met again at uh, about 5.30, for morning prayer, then we had breakfast, and then we cleaned up breakfast, and there was another 
another office, another time to meet God in silence and prayer and worship. Then they went to work. I went to sleep. Then we met for midday at 10 o'clock. We met at 12 o'clock. We met at 2 o'clock. Then we met at uh, 5 o'clock. And then we met for Compline before we went to bed, or the, the final evening office. And, and this rhythm they had of stopping to be with God uh, in order that when they were working, they were still in the presence of God. So the whole the goal is pray unceasingly, abiding in Jesus all the time. And so you'll read in Benedict uh, these words, nothing indeed is to be preferred to the work of God. And the work of God is is prayer. And uh, he writes things like, it's the, uh, the monks will always be ready to arise without delay. When the signal is given, each will hasten to arrive at the work of God. It is the priority of life. They would pray this, they pray the Psalms every week, all 150. Uh, and um, so Jerry and I, after that first week in 2003, uh, and we came back home, we began a rhythm uh, of daily offices every day. And generally three to four times a day, always morning, midday, and before we went to bed. Uh, and a fourth at around dinner time, but that was a bit more flexible, but morning, midday, and evening. And again, the goal was not to get something from God in scripture, it was to be with Jesus. And so uh, for me, it generally works out to be like this. In the morning, I'll spend a good amount of time with God, um, you know, long extended time in scripture study, um, silence for at least 20 minutes. Uh, my midday and evening prayer silence in as well, uh, but for sure, that morning has a big chunk. And then midday and evening will be longer, but there will be silence. I mean, it will be shorter, but there will be silence built into it uh, and some scripture. And I think the biggest change for me of this rhythm was it stopped me from going 24-7, and it regulated my being and my doing. It really changed my life. Uh, and in fact, one of the first questions I ask every leader that I meet is, if I get, if I get time with them over like coffee, is how are you doing with your being and doing, your Mary and Martha? Uh, how is your rhythms in your days? Uh, and then, of course, your weeks and your months and your quarter and every year and then your season of life. But that idea of rhythm is such a gift in our 24-7 culture. Now, the second great gift I got from the rule of Benedict was uh, a balanced rule of life. I think one of the, the reason this has stood this test of time of 1,500 years is it was not overly austere uh, and he was able to regulate all of life around four basic categories, prayer, rest, relationships, and work with God at the center. And, and, and the goal of any rule of life, but I think Benedict attained it quite well here, is to or, orient one's whole life around the love of Jesus. In fact, here's a, a line that's such a beautiful line uh, from the rule of Benedict. It reads like this, your way of acting should be different from the world's way. The love of Christ must come before all else. You read it again. It's such a beautiful line. Your way of acting should be different from the world's way. The love of Christ must come before all else. I mean, that is just worth, you know, pondering through a day. And this has become very central to my life and, and actually to our own leadership development. You'll find it in most of our books on emotionally healthy, you know, spirituality. It's part, it's a core part of the emotionally healthy discipleship course, how to help you begin to structure a, a life with rhythms around a rule with some balance with God at the center. Now, the word rule, I know, is a very negative word in our culture, but in ancient Greek usage, uh, when it was first developed, uh, it's the word for trellis. And it refers to a, a trellis as a, as a way for grapes to get off the ground and grow upward and be fruitful and productive. And so all a rule of life is, it's an intentional way of structuring my life so I can abide in Jesus and bear fruit. Uh, 
And so it's an intentional, conscious way of living life, keeping God at the center. Most of us have an unconscious rule of life, how we operate, you know, little bit quiet time, church on Sunday, small group. Uh, this is much more intentional, focused on how can I prefer the love of Jesus above all else. And, and I do recommend you look at the Emotional Discipleship course. In fact, the first part one, the spirituality course, goes into it in quite a bit of detail. But it, every pastor, every leader needs uh, to be have one that you're consistently updating. We update ours every year and are just very aware as we add any new commitments, how's it going to affect our prayer life, our rest, our relationships, and and can we still keep God at the center or is, it, is the weight of this new addition of work going to weigh us down and, and keep us from, again, preferring the love of Jesus above all else? A third great lesson, uh, which maybe seem very obvious to you, was silence and stillness and the gift of few words. Walking into any kind of monastery retreat environment, you're always going to be struck by the silence. And we were just overwhelmed by it. And, you know, the slow down spirituality, and again, which they saw themselves drawing from the, the tradition of Moses and Elijah and John the Baptist and Jesus and Paul. And uh, But what makes our silence different as, as Christians is you know, we're not Buddhists and Hindus and Sufis. Uh, secular people do silence. So it's a general, you know, thing out there. Just like there's scripture, other religions have scripture. What makes silence so unique for us as followers of Jesus is we're being still before the Lord. We're commanded to do that. Let all the earth be silent before him, scripture commands us. And, and so, so it, it, silence is such a gift, uh, in scripture that we've lost, especially in our missional Protestant West. And, you know, Benedict says things like this. There are times when good words are to be left unsaid out of esteem for silence. And he writes, monks should diligently cultivate silence at all times, especially at night. He says the wise are known for their few words. And, and so it's not simply exterior silence. The goal is interior silence. So I, I can be at Times Square, sit on a bench and if I am in the right frame, I can sit in the park bench and have silence, even with the noise around me, because interiorly, I, I, I can be still before the Lord and silent. And in fact, ancient monasteries were so serious about this, many of them used sign language to talk to each other and only had like one or two times a week, they would actually speak words. Uh, Jerry loves the, the grand silence. And that is uh, at monasteries and the Benedictine spirituality, after the final evening office called Compline or Compline, uh, there's a grand silence until after breakfast the following day. And Jerry loves that because I like talking at night. And she'll say to me so often, Pete, Pete, it's the grand silence. Okay. Basically, she's saying, please shut up. All right. I, 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 it's the grand silence. <laughs> and, uh, but it's quite a good, quite a good discipline. So the fourth great gift, uh, besides again, rhythms of a daily office and rule of life and silence and stillness. Uh, of Benedict's rule is the centrality of surrendering your self-will. Repeatedly, he says in uh, in the Benedict's rule, he says, if you are ready to give up your own will, you know, come, you know, join us or hate the urgings of self-will, very aware of how our self-will clashes with God's will and that self-will must be broken. And so that, you know, it was such a shocker to me, I think being in the environment uh, of how my self-will clashed with these rhythms, with the structure, with the discipline, uh, but beginning to see disappointments and embarrassments and limits and walls 
as a breaking of self and how God was often or sometimes and often thwarting my plans to break my self-will, I don't. I did not see how my will was as mixed in with God's will until I began to seriously bring into my discipleship some of the riches of the monastic tradition, things like silence and stillness and uh, uh, I'll have to talk about just a few minutes, humility as, as a goal. But I, I got I got it. The Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, you know, thy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how Jesus himself in Gethsemane wrestled with Father, not my will, but your will be done. And, and you know, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered and that it's no different for any of us and, and this issue of self-will. And so every day when I'm doing silence, I'm just so aware, I'm, I'm, oh, my hands are open, Lord. Not my will, but your will be done. Help me surrender to your will today. I mean, I remember very clearly preparing sermons and sensing God tapping me on the shoulder and me saying to him in so many words, not now. I do not have time. I got to finish this up. I got to move on. This was a turning point for me, even in goal setting. I do set general goals and direction, but they're much looser than they ever were pre-2003. Because I realized so many of my goals were really my goals, just that. They weren't necessarily his. There wasn't a discernment, a waiting, a, uh, an openness, open hand to them. And that was just, it was just a direction-changing shift for my life. And I appreciate so much in the rule of St. Benedict, that centrality of the breaking of self-will, which leads to, to the fourth, uh, to me, lesson or gift out of the rule of St. Benedict, and that is the focus on the goal of humility and discipleship. Uh, I mean, that is not something we hear at discipleship or leadership conferences. Never. We're not talking about groveling. We're talking about the goal of humility to grow into Christ's likeness. And um, again, he wasn't the first one. Uh, you find this in other monastic folks uh, like Cassian before him. But he talks about how there's a ladder of humility and things like being willing to subject yourself to those in authority over you. Uh the direction, be willing to accept the patience to accept difficulties in other people, uh, honesty with about our own faults. He calls it radical honesty about our own faults, deeply aware that we're the chief of sinners, you know, speaking less. I mean, it's just the whole notion of having a goal of becoming humble uh, was just foreign to me as a Christian leader after being a Christian 17 years, which is so interesting because it wasn't something very much talked about and, and then beginning to actually seek it, that Christ's power might rest on me. And uh, I think it's such a gift for the church today, such a corrective for us. And one of the uh, things that Benedictine communities are known for and have always been known for since the beginning was it's a classless society. In other words, when you come in, uh, everyone divests themselves of all their wealth and position and power and titles. And it doesn't matter what your education is. It doesn't matter your background, your race, your color. Everybody's on the same footing. And so it doesn't matter if you were a senator, uh, you're the same as the person who's washing the dishes. And uh, you know who you are is more important than what you do. Uh, and I just love that. I, I, I've taken that in for me, of even our local church. I think it's such a beautiful, beautiful uh, gift. Uh, the uh, the fifth gift uh, is tr is um, to receive all guests to welcome all guests as 
Christ himself. And it's one of the, one of the, one of their principles in Benedict's rule was that to receive every visitor as Christ. And I heard a lot about, you know, folks going to corporations to learn about how to treat our customers, which I always found a bit problematic because we're not a corporation. Uh, and I appreciate, you know, things we can learn from corporate world, but we're, we're, we're theologically informed people that we, we follow Jesus. We live by scripture. And when I, when I saw that, that it practiced to treat every guest as Christ himself, you know, coming out of Hebrews chapter 13. And when I, I, I saw it practice and I, and I, I read it. I said, this is it. This is how we want to treat people who walk into our fellowship as if they're Jesus himself. I thought that was a tremendous, uh, rich gift for us. And, uh, and then finally, the last gift I, I want to just bring to you, the major one anyway, was he called it, he calls it, therefore, we intend to establish a school for the Lord's service. And that is, he saw that his communities as a school for the Lord's service. And thus, he invites people to join this school of the Lord's service. And it, 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 I, I just love the idea that people come to our churches and our communities, that we're a discipleship community. We're all learners. You know, and Jesus says in Matthew 28, you know, make disciples, basically says, go to school with me. You know, let me be your personal teacher. That being a Christian is to be a disciple, uh, to be a follower of Jesus. And that, yes, the disciplines and the, and the boundaries and the guidelines, we are forming Christ and people, and that it is a school. This isn't entertainment. You're not just coming to, you know, be encouraged for the day. That you're following a person called Jesus, and we as leaders are putting people into a school. And again, that's why for me, uh, the emotionally healthy discipleship course, part one and two, is so critical to bring to a church. Saying, no, this is more than a small group curriculum. This is more than just praying for each other. And no, this is actually a course. It's like a school and. Uh, we're shaping a community here around following Jesus. We're equipping you to do that, but you've got to get into a firsthand relationship with the person of Jesus. You know, go to school with me, says Jesus, and uh, it is a school for the Lord's service. I would love to see every local church uh, in the world. That is what we do, and we invite people in uh, in order to follow him. Now, there are so many other gifts and lessons out of uh, Benedict's rule. Things like stability and community, uh, you know, part of the, you're in, you're in that community for Benedict until you die. Uh, I mean, that's quite intense. Now I, but there is something about stability, uh, and staying in a community of, of sinners just like us over the long haul. And, uh, I think it's, there's a gift versus hopping around. And I, I've really appreciated that. I've been in the same, uh, gosh, community now 31 years at New Life Fellowship and, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a gift. It's a gift. One of his great lines also, another little lesson there is day by day, remind yourself daily that you're going to die. Day by day, remind yourself that you're going to die. And uh, I, that's in the rule. And I, it's a wonderful maxim. It's a wonderful truth. And that I live every day. Uh, I'm going to see him face to face. And that uh, it's that precious and that important before God. And again, there's so much scripture in there that I've loved and enjoyed over the years, uh, and I commend it to you. And, and, and two that have stood out to me, and I'll close with this, that have really made an impact on me over the years uh, is from Psalm 34, where he he writes, as he's, he's inviting men and women to leave everything and join these communities to bear witness to Christ. And he says, those who, he quotes Psalm 34, fear the Lord, you as holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And I, I've imagined lions 
perhaps weak and hungry in a forest, but God's promise, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. It's beautiful. And I want to be that kind of person. I want to, I want to seek God with my whole life and I trust him with everything else. And then Psalm 27, 4, where he says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. That is my life verse, uh, that above all else, our life, I don't care if you're a leader uh, in the marketplace, pastor, uh, social worker, teacher, we all have the same first work. It is to seek the face of God. Uh, it is to be with him, uh, to commune with him, to gaze on his beauty, to seek him in his temple. And out of that, we serve him. So uh, let me invite you again to join us in what I believe is a revolution needed in the church today. And that is that we invite people to a drastic call to follow Christ, to leave the world, to leave the idols that are in the church and follow Jesus to a, to a desert kind of spirituality. And I think Benedict brings some great wisdom in there to it. And we invite people to a serious discipleship with him. So go to emotionallyhealthy.org and check out our uh, discipleship training. Uh, the discipleship course, we do trainings every month, whether it's a webinar or a three and a half hour training to bring this to your community. Uh, it's rich. It's powerful. Check out that ebook, uh, Church History, on emotionallyhealthy.org slash church history. It's a free ebook. Check it out. Um, and I, let me invite you, broaden your... Uh, learnings. Uh, as other people interacted with scripture through the centuries, there is much for us to learn. So God bless you. It has been great to be with you today. I hope you've been challenged. I've been challenged just reviewing this again and making my notes. Uh, God has met me and may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. See you next week. God bless you.